Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Tonight's class is a very difficult class for me. It may not be for you, but it is for me. Because those of us who believe the King James Bible is the perfect word of God, we have this idea in our head that the King James translators got together, they made a Bible, and it came out perfect and never needed anything else And it has never changed in any way, shape, form, or fashion since the day it was made, ever. And that's just not true. (laughs) But that's hard to understand. And then it's hard to then take the King James Bible to people and, and say, this is the perfect word of God. It's timeless. It's never changed. You can trust it. Well, in many ways, that is true. And in other ways, it is not true. There have been different editions of of this book. Now, it's important to note there have been no revisions. There have been editions. Now, it's, it's kind of playing with words because when you come out with another edition, the reason you came out with that, that new edition is because you made some refinements to it which could technically be revisions. But the question is, what was revised? What was changed? What was fixed? What was corrected? What was the problem with what the, what the translators came out with? As we move on, I'll have Monica read, read verses 1 through 3. And we'll have Bombali read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Gross read chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the. Yeah. <laughs> and the earth, and the earth was without. <laughs> and the earth was without form and. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now, how would you like to read? Your Bible like that every day. How would you like to sit here together and study the Bible like that? Would you like to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And all that... So it, it says the same thing. But it's very difficult to read because of the spelling and the way that and, and the type font and all that. Gross, you want to try verse? Just read verse one. Let me try. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. The fact that. So what he's what he's saying <laughs> what he, <laughs> what he's saying in English is the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. <laughs> but this is how they write serpent. So it's F E R P E N T. It's English. It's English. But this is this is they, they were limited in the letters they had available to them to print. So they they this is both an S and an F. If you wrote the word jump, it would look like this. That's what the word jump would look like. The I and the J were used interchangeably. Yeah. So these things didn't get fixed until much later because this was a limitation of printing in that day. Now, somebody had to sit down and hand carve. When you came in, you said, I, I have here John chapter 3. Would you print me a copy of John chapter 3? Okay. He's got to sit down and he's got to carve John chapter 3, the entire thing. He has to carve every letter. Everything that you want included has to be carved into what he's printing. So when you look at that paper, you're looking at the original 1611, and that's how it was printed. And so now I have the, I have been working on this all day, trying to verify information, and I, I am certain as we go through this material, you're probably going to have lots of questions. I have lots of questions. I'm going to have to go back and look at some of this stuff more because this study opened up a whole aspect of the King James Bible to me that I was not familiar with. And so I may not be able to answer all your questions today. I hope in the future that I can pin down more of this information. I'm going to be getting my hands on certain books that will help and other information that will help. But more happened to the Bible than, than King James Bible believers would like to admit. But in the end, it was okay. And, and I hope to be able to demonstrate that to you with the information that I have and to show that to you. So yeah, pass those around and let people look at them, and we will get started. So a quick summary of events with the translators, and then we'll get into the additions. When it comes to understanding the daily work of a King James translator, we have very little information. There's very little to work with or to know how they did what they did, what their process was. Um, there's just, they just didn't leave behind much information. They did leave behind some information. And we can only gather uh, fragments of information about their work from a few documents that were left behind. Um, number one is the list of rules given. So we went over those rules yesterday. Um, there's a couple, of, a couple of places where these rules were printed and, and so that... You know, there, there's no confusion about what the rules were. Um, everybody knows that the rules that we went over yesterday, that's what they had to follow. Number two, a report delivered to the government about the accuracy of this Bible. When it was done, a report was given to the government, to the king. He basically, the, the, um, the bishops always got this privilege. The bishops, when, when they had... Hampton's court conference, the bishops got to write up a summary of what happened. And so when the bishops wrote the summary of what happened, they just tore the Puritans apart and mocked them and made them look bad and then had to admit, but they did get a, they did get a translation of the Bible. <laughs> and so they had to do the same thing. When the work was done, they had to write a report and turn it into the government about the, the finished work of the King James Bible. And, and that report is, is available. People can read it and you can see. Now, it doesn't tell you what the King James translators did on a daily basis, but it does give some information about the work they did. Number three, a biography of one of the translators. 
His name you should be very familiar with. Somebody tell me one important characteristic about John Boy. What, what stood out about him? At five years old, he was reading the Bible in Hebrew. Yeah. And at six years old, he was writing in Hebrew with beautiful handwriting. <laughs> Apparently. Then there is the, the preface written by the translators. So they wrote one to the king and one to the reader. Uh, some Bibles have both. Some Bibles have one or the other. Some Bibles have none. So it just depends on who, your, uh, who, who the publisher of your particular Bible is, whether, whether it's there or not. Um, if, if you have it, it's good to read it. If not, it's easy to find online. And then finally, letters, documents, transcripts, and manuscripts. So letters that the translators left behind. Um, so letters and other documents that they left behind that give some detail here and there. One of the documents left behind was from Westminster, the, the Westminster New Testament Company. So from, from, from Westminster, Minster, such a funny word. Yes. Manuscript 98. So you can, you can shorthand it like this. MS 98 was left behind by the translators. Um, this is not a, this is not a, like a, a manuscript like we were talking about that they went from Greek to, to English. This, is, this was given a title and declared to be an, an, an antique manuscript because it came from one of the King James translators. So they gave it the name, MS 98, Manuscript 98. It shows the early stages of work by the Westminster Company as they translated the epistles. So, so they could see, written in this document, the early stages of their preparation to translate the, the epistles. And uh, they left behind those notes. Each page of this document is divided into four columns, but only the first two columns are used. The left outer column contains marginal readings, Greek words, and scripture references. So they, they left behind this, this book or this manuscript that's this got four columns. Yeah, that's four. And then uh, they used the left outer column, and it, it had... Um, they, they were taking notes in it, and those notes had Greek words, um, marginal readings. So, uh, you know, that's, that's not the entire verse or passage or chapter. It just had portions of it that they wanted to look at or that they were thinking about. And then um, uh, scripture references. So they, maybe it was cross-references. Maybe it was the particular reference they were looking at or thinking about. Um, and then the... Left center column contained 1,796 verses from the epistles. So they just made a list of verses from the epistles in this left center column. That's what's interesting. The verses were written by hand. They were rough drafts of the verses. They were said to be halfway between the Bishop's Bible and the King James Bible. So you're, when you look at this document, you're literally looking at them looking at the Bishop's Bible, and then just making a rough, just writing out a rough idea of what they intend to put into the King James Bible. And so it's kind of, it's just a, a rough draft. You know, it's not, it's not the polished final uh, verse. It's just, just the first thing that came to mind or what I think it should be. Now, between the verses that are written in full are the, verses, are the verse numbers for, uh, for the other 1,013 verses of the epistles. So these, this 1,700 verses, uh, 769 verses, they were written out in full. So it'd be the whole verse, right? And then in between them, they wrote just the verse number to, to, the, to the passage between these two. So say, say you, they were translating Colossians 1.1, or they were working on Colossians 1.1 here. 
And Colossians 1-2 is fine. I don't have any notes to make about it right now, so I just write Colossians 1-2 here. I don't write out the verse, I just write the reference. But then I need to work on Colossians 1-3, so then they'd come to Colossians 1-3 and they'd write out the entire verse in kind of a rough draft of what they intended to translate it into. Does that make sense? Uh, the, verse that, the verses that are written in full are verses that must be corrected as they transition from the Bishop's Bible to the KJV. The verses that have only the reference written will remain the same, at least, at least in that initial stage. They had no intention of making changes to the verses that they just you know, wrote down. A second document, or another of these, these five that we have uh, left behind, was, was a 1602 Bishop's Bible housed in, in the Oxford Bodleian Library. Everybody knows how to spell that, right? So it's, it's housed as a 1602 Bishop's Bible. What was the Bible the King James Bible was based on? The Bishop's Bible. That was the one they were supposed to try to stay as close to as, as was reasonably, reasonably possible. Uh, and so uh, they, have a, they have this Bible... <laughs> And this bishop's Bible has notes from the translators that, that note changes that should be made. This do- document is commonly called the Bodleian Bishop's Bible. This Bible demonstrates the work of the translators at a later stage than that of Manuscript 98. So they found this after, you know, so this came first, and then this is a later a later, the, the Bishop's Bible is a later document that they found, and, um, and it gave some insight into the work they were doing. Again, it doesn't tell you what they did, how they did it, but it does give some details that you can kind of help piece together. Forty Bishop's Bibles were supplied to the translators by the king's printer to assist them with translation work. So this is one of those 40 Bibles. A third document are the notes of translator John Boyce. His notes were taken as part of the final revision team. So if you remember, he was selected to be part of the final team to do the revision, and his notes were found from the, from the final revision. So his notes during, what did he work on during the translation work? Apocrypha and you reading that from your notes or you got it all stored up here. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so he but they had they have no notes from that work, but he was selected to be part of the revision team and they have his notes from that. And so that further helped give some insight. His notes were taken as part of the final revision team. He made four hundred and ninety notes regarding four hundred and eighty Verses. His notes were made in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. <laughs> Who does that? I mean, I, I speak English, but I'm just going to sit. I think I'll take notes in German today. <laughs> These notes cover discussions over the epistles and the book of Revelation. The notes of John Boy can be found in two locations one at Oxford College, at Corpus Christi College at Oxford, and the other at the British Library. Now, editions of the King James Version. Since 1611, there have been many editions of the KJV. We should not confuse editions with revisions. All right, now, I don't believe it's semantics. I don't... The, the revised version is a revision. That's someone trying to, to do what they believe is necessary to revise the Word of God. That is to change it. All right? and, and, the, and the changes that were made by the revised version were hard changes to the actual text. It was not you know, superficial type changes like italicized words or... Uh, uh, um, punctuation or, you know, things like that. It, 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 they actually changed the Word of God. And that was their intent. 
And the fact that this reality is a source of much confusion between adversaries of the KJV as well as friends of the KJV. So when you say something like this, and when we go through these editions, people who hate the King James Bible are going to say, see, if you can make those changes, how come we can't make the changes that we made? Well, the changes that you made destroyed the Word of God. And then... The people who love the KJV say, you're a liar. That book's, the Bible has never changed. It's like, well, yes, it has. And again, you've got to be honest about that, and you've got to be knowledgeable about it so you don't go around saying ignorant things and causing people not to trust you because you, you spout out a bunch of ignorance. Like when, when people know something has happened and you continue to claim that it has not happened, you just look crazy. <laughs> When it's a historical fact and people know that happened, then rather than fighting against it because you just choose not to believe it, and belief is a choice. That's what God says. God said it's a choice. You can choose to believe or you can choose not to believe. It's up to you. (laughs) And so the same is true in our everyday life. When you're you're presented with factual, well-documented information, you can choose to believe it or not. It's up to you. And people in our camp, the reason they get accused of blind faith is because in certain areas, they do exercise blind faith. Only in certain areas. Because <laughs> they don't exercise blind faith when it comes to tithing <laughs> or when it comes to you know, removing sin out of your life. Then God's working on me. Yeah, that's how that works. So, The most relevant area of correction for these editions relate to printing errors and the method of printing at the time always, always introduced unintended errors. So repeatedly throughout history, the number one problem you have with the King James Bible is printing errors. And you're going to find that every time someone set out to fix the printing errors of the last edition... They fixed them and then introduced new printing errors in the new edition. <laughs> it's, it's like, for some reason, actually, until we get to the 1800s, there's a certain man who just started blasting printers of the Bible. Like, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing such a poor job printing the most important document to ever exist? It's like you're just rushing through this stuff like, like it's nothing. And so it's just, just a constant battle with printing errors. That's the number one thing that you're going to see. Over time, these were corrected, and at other times, new errors were introduced. All printing errors were eventually worked out. So they they all did eventually get out, and of course, today we have far more modern printing, um, and and so it's it's done very differently. Not that errors can't still accidentally be, you know, I have um, another Bible at home. It's a beautiful Bible that someone gave me. And like ha- several several words, you know, part of the letter is gone. It's like you, this was just printed in like like two thousand five. <laughs> like what? Ha- how did I get all these printing errors? Like I feel like I feel like you went to the Gutenberg Press and 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 pre- you know made this Bible. So um, I don't know why that is. It's a very expensive Bible. That kind of thing should not exist in a very expensive Bible, but. That's, that's how it is. In 1629, so we'll start laying these out. Can you tell I'm excited about this? This is, this is a hard fact that I had to come to terms with as well, uh, but it's, it's the reality. Permission was granted to make necessary corrections to the KJV. This was one of the largest efforts to refine the Bible. Now, I'm giving you, as we go through this, I'm going to give you dates of certain uh, editions, but there were a lot more. Uh, just most of them were insignificant. Nobody, nobody cared. It didn't really, the changes were so minute that you could hardly say it was another edition. So in between some of these, these dates that I give you, there were other editions that just were not relevant. Either they didn't stick around, nobody used them, or the changes were so minor that, it, that it wasn't, it's not worth mentioning. 
So that means every time you go to buy a King James Bible, it's going to say KJV on the front or on the side or on the back. And it might even say authorized version inside, but it may not be. Because even today, there's still, we're just going to do some updates. No, leave it alone. It's been 400 plus years. What are you going to update? You can update it to death. And that's, that's fully what they intend to do. Now, that being said, there were some reasonable updates, as you can see, as you sit there and try to read that, that, that were good and that were necessary. And if you remember the limitations that the King James translators had, some of these updates that happened later, they were not permitted to do. They had to stick by the rules, and that's it. They didn't get to make some of these other changes and, and updates. So some of the updates that came later were good, and they were helpful, and we're going to see it didn't damage or harm or change the Word of God. That's, just keep that in mind as we go through this, and you start wondering, what in the world has happened to our Bible? <laughs> as I'm reading, I have three or four books at home, and I'm looking at all of them like, what? <laughs> when did all this happen? And we have this very simplistic idea about what, what has happened to the Bible. Now, it doesn't change that this is God's Word. I, don't think, I, don't, I think that over once we got to a certain point, it increased the perfection. It made it better. It, made it, it, it is as modern and as clear as it can possibly be at this point. All right, and so we're, we're going to try to work our way through that, and hopefully we make sense of it. All right, Cambridge University printers, Thomas and John Buck. They were given the task of printing this refined edition. Some 493 changes were made, including changes to the Apocrypha. Now, so this 1629 edition, uh, Thomas and John... Buck are making the, the, they're the ones tasked with making the changes. They suggest 493 changes should be made. Um, 447 of these changes became standard for the future. So when it comes to future editions, you're going to find many of these changes carried over into the future editions. The primary focus of these was to standardize the spelling. That's important. All right, now, if I standardize the spelling of a word, did I change the word? Yes or no? If I standardize the spelling of a word, did I change the word? No. It's the same word. It's just being spelled in a way that people can recognize in that day and time. And so you might recognize some of these, having looked at our little Bible or our printouts there, the letter I was exchanged for the letter J when necessary. That makes a big difference. If you read the word Jesus and it's, it's I-E-S-U-S, now you would pronounce it Jesus. You wouldn't change the pronunciation. You're just supposed to understand that this is being this is they don't have they didn't have a J that they could put that they could print with, so you just had to understand that an I and J were were interchangeable and they had rules for it. Um, you know, if if it was before a consonant versus before a vowel, so obviously if it was before before a vowel, there's a good chance it's probably a J and not an I. And if it's before a consonant, then there's a good chance it's an I and and like important, you wouldn't say important. <laughs> It's no, it has absolutely nothing to do with this whatsoever. <laughs> that, that has nothing to do with this in any way. So, throw that idea out, pretend like you didn't bring it up, and confuse everybody. All right, so, uh, so the I and the J were replaced. Uh, uh, this Cambridge updated this problem. Also, the inner the, the use of letters U. And V, they introduced the letter V, which Gross found out just a moment ago. And he was trying to read, and it just uh, it makes it very difficult 
when you're trying to, because your eyes are used to seeing what's on this paper. And so when you go back to something like that, it's like, what in the world am I looking at? And I've had people tell me, now this is, it's ignorant, but they tell me, you know, have you ever seen an original 1611? I can't even read it. It's, it's a whole, it says something completely different. No, it says the same thing. You just don't recognize the spelling. It doesn't say anything different. You didn't try to slow down and read it. If you set your, your modern KJV right next to the uh, 1611 KJV, it's going to say the same thing. There will be a few places with some minor differences in the italics. Otherwise, it's going to say the same thing. Along with these changes, some updates were made to the italicized words. Where possible, they were made more concise. And we're going to talk about it in just a second. Um, you must remember that italicized word, the italicized words were necessary to make sense of the translated passage. So the more concise they were, the less added context we have. Now we talked about the word toothbrush in Spanish versus English. Who remembers that? And I remember now how to say it. It's cepillo de dientes. That's toothbrush in Spanish, but you're saying... All right. Now, now when it comes to the italicized words, all right, so if you take cepillo de dientes, it means, it means brush of the teeth, but you're trying to translate it to toothbrush, right? So in order to say the same thing in Spanish, you have to, you have to put in italicized words of the. They need to be there or it's not going to make sense. It's going to be a broken sentence in Spanish, right? But in English, it makes perfect sense. Now, that's a, that's a toothbrush. Imagine the complexity of the King James Bible. And you're trying to take it from Greek, Aramaic, and, and Hebrew into English. You've got to add the context. Otherwise, it's not going to make any sense. But the italicized words were the words the translators deemed necessary to make sense of what God was saying. Right, so if we remove some of the italicized words, we haven't done harm to the word of God. Does that make sense? I'm going to show you an example. In the English language, when you write in English, okay, say you're writing an essay or whatever, it... it to, to demonstrate that you have good command of the English language, you need, to be a, you need to be as informative as possible and at the same time as concise as possible. So you don't want a sentence that's just full of useless words that don't need to be there. So you've you got to go through the sentence repeatedly and the paragraph and the essay and remove any words that don't really support what you're saying. They're just kind of there. They, they're... There, there's no real reason for them to be there. And that's very easy to do when you're trying to, to, to explain something. And you go back through and you're like, man, why did I, I said all this just to say that? I can cut so many words out of this sentence and it'll say the same thing. I'm going to show you that in just a second. And the ability to speak clearly and in an informative manner using the least amount of words as possible is a sign of strong use of the language. Now, here's, here's an example. For each and every book you purchase, you will receive a free bookmark. All right, it's just a simple sentence. A simple sentence that has way too many words in it that are unnecessary. It can be made so much more concise and say the exact same thing. So I'll show you. Uh, for every book you purchase, you will receive a free bookmark. You see the difference? Does it say the same thing? But it didn't, we didn't need all those extra words in there. Right? So now it says the same thing, but it's far more concise. And, it's, and the more concise you are, the more clear you're being. The more words you introduce into your sentences that are unnecessary, it just people don't want to read it. They don't want to hear you say it. They're just like, can you just... I'm not reading this. This is dumb. I... I I enjoy writing, and I enjoy trying to learn how to be as concise as I can be. And then I have some friends who like to write. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and sometimes they want me to read something they wrote, and I'm just like, I, this is horrible. 
I mean, what you're saying is good, your ideas are good, but your ability to express yourself is terrible. So you need to learn how to cut this down, make it concise, make it clear. You know, get rid of some of the bloat, all this extra, all these extra words that are completely unnecessary. And and you know, and, and I'll show them some examples. I'll go through and I'll cut it, cut it down, and then send it back to them. They're like, "Wow." <laughs> And when you, when you read from someone who knows how to do this well, they know how to take the least amount of words and deliver an unbelievably clear sentence. Man, it is, it's incredible. It's fun to read. It's like, man, this guy said more in two sentences than I can say in four paragraphs. And that's how the Bible is oftentimes. You start reading the Bible, and you're like, how in the world? Did God? So the story of Cain and Abel is one of the most... It's one of the biggest concepts, morally, spiritually, family, uh, uh, your relationship with God. I mean, it's, there's, there is so much packed into one chapter. You could preach out of that chapter for, for months and months and months and months and months and never exhaust it. Because God can be, he can be so concise, but he just just delivers a massive concept that needs to be taken apart. And so they had to cut down. They, they didn't have to. They chose to cut down on the italicized words to make them more concise, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, I have another example. Um, do not try to anticipate in advance those events that will completely revolutionize society. That is a ridiculous sentence. Here's the revision. Do not try to anticipate revolutionary events. You see the difference? It's a massive difference. It's far more concise, far less words. That first sentence has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 words. The revision has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 words. And it says the same thing. All right, everybody got it? Then 1638. So that's 1629, 1638. Uh, Cambridge added again. They revised it even further. They noted that the 1629 updates. Now, at this point, we're not very far from 1611. So it's not likely the English language has changed that much. I'm sure it's changed in, in you know, 27 years, but not, not much, not a whole lot. And so you're going to see that what they go back to with almost every single edition is the same thing. Updating, updates in the same areas. All right, so uh, in 1638, they changed, they, they did 235 spelling updates and then um, 224 of them became standard. So you began to see them in the, in the later editions. Chapter headings. So I handed... Miss Monica and Gross, and uh, you know the the our printouts, and I said read verses one through three, and they read the chapter headings. <laughs> Which, if you're not used to this, that's what you would think. But you see that that section there at the beginning, that's that's a chapter heading. And so when you see that there were 493 changes to the Bible, well, many of them were chapter headings. No, you don't have it there. Uh, this here. Yeah, well, the, the chapter heading, that's, that's the chapter, and then this is the heading of the chapter to tell you what's in it. That's not actually... So verse 1, verse 1 is here. All right, so spelling, chapter headings, and then you see to the left and the right of the paper, those are margin notes. Updates were made to the margin notes. So again, when you, you have to take into account when you see numbers like this and you say and they say 
you know, hundreds of changes were made. Well, a good portion of those were chapter headings, margin notes, spelling, punctuation. That, that, that's the kind of thing that they're changing mostly. The 1629 edition was said to be concerned with scholarly niceties. So in other words, they were trying to make it prettier. Two of the men who worked on the 1638 Cambridge edition were King James translators. That's not true of any other editions. So this one, two of the men who helped work on these changes were original translators for the King James. And those men are Samuel Ward, which I don't think I've talked to you about him, and our good friend John Boy. John Boy, John Boyce, um, I, I, I don't know how they would pronounce it, so say it how you want. These two men worked on the original 1611 KJV. They also helped with the 1638 update. Next, let's finish this section, then we'll take a break. The, the refinements of this edition were said to be carried out with great care. So this wasn't just a flippant, you know, I'm not happy with the Bible, so I'm going to make changes to it. It wasn't that kind of thing. They, they, they were very careful in what they did. The 1638 edition remained in place for 100 years before people started messing with it again. And this, this one's very important for Cambridge. This was a Cambridge event, um, this particular one. Cambridge kind of lost its way in the 1800s when it came to its, its text. But today, most King James Bible believers want you to have a Cambridge Bible. They prefer that your, your text be a Cambridge text. And there are a few ways to, there are a few characteristics, a few ways to know if it, if it is the Cambridge or not. Um, I don't think it matters at this point, but I don't think that the differences between them are, are big enough to fight over. But if you're wondering, most want you to have a Cambridge text. And we'll look at that in, in a few minutes. We'll kind of, we'll find out what you have. Everybody, everybody, all right, so we'll take a minute and we'll, we'll, we'll spend this, this next few minutes looking at a few things. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we will find out a few things about your Bible. Whether you're going to hell or not, that's what we're going to find out. Because if you have the wrong Bible, surely you're going to hell. No? <laughs> well, that's how some people act. So, verse 1, then was Jesus led up of the, what does it say? Capital S or lowercase s? Everybody? Everybody has a capital S, nobody has a lowercase s. Or we're not done, we're not done yet. We're not even close to done yet. All right, so everybody has a capital S, that's, that's a good indication. Now turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 12. And immediately the spirit, is it lowercase? Hers is lowercase. No. So this is the problem. This, this is the problem. Matthew, she had a capital S. But in Mark, she has a lowercase s, which means the text that she has comes from a mixture of Cambridge and Oxford. And it's probably true of you also, as we're not done yet. Turn to Nahum. Chapter 3. Not, not, not Nahum. Nahum. Nahum chapter 3. You're excused. You may. Verse 16. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and... Fleeth. Fleeth? Raise your hand if you have fleeth. Raise your hand if you have. No, no. No. You have either fleeth or you have flieth. So again, raise your hand if you have fleeth. So did you say the first thing? You said the first one. Fleeth. 
flieth. Fleeth, flieth. You got it? Yeah. Raise your hand if you have fleeth. All right, that's everybody on this side of the room. <laughs> Raise your hand if you have flieth. I feel, I feel like you don't want to. I feel like you don't want to answer me here. They have three, verse sixteen. You have flieth. All right. Now, if you have Holy Spirit capitalized in the two verses that we talked about, and you have flieth, then you have the 1930s Cambridge edition. 1930s. If you have any other variation, then you either have the 1762 Cambridge, or you have the 1769 Oxford, or a mixture of the two. If you if you if Holy Spirit is not lowercased in both passages and you don't have fleeth, then you don't have the pure Oxford text from 1769, which is considered the standard text for the King James Bible. So she has a mixture, I have a mixture, and then everybody on this side <laughs> has a mixture. The original 1611, the very first one. Said flieth. <laughs> now, now let me ask you a question. If a canker worm fleeth or flieth away, how important is it is that to your salvation? <laughs> what is a canker worm? Exactly. <laughs> now I want the pure word of God. I don't want anybody changing my Bible. But it has been changed. And there's nothing I can do about it. And, and unless I'm going to sit down and have a list of 100 or 493 changes that were made and go through all of them and make sure every one of them are the same as the original 1611, well, do you also want the spelling to be the same as the original 1611? Do you want the typography to be the same? The typography is the print that's here. You want the layout to be the same? Well, you don't get to choose. Which one is it going to be? So these changes were introduced. Many of them, if not most of them, were reverted back to the 1611 spelling. That's why you have these mixtures. And the, the original translators used flieth. This is the word they chose to use. And at some point in 1769... Um, Oxford made these changes. Are you going to throw your Are you going to throw your Bible away now and not use it? So how, how does So how does that Bible compare to your Luganda Bible? There's no comparison, All right? So what I would suggest people do is strive to have as close as close to the original 1611 as you can reasonably have. And, and read it and study it and, and know that there's been as few changes as possible. But as you're going to see, that's going to be very difficult to do. Do not change the Bible. Actually, you're going to find out by the time. So you had two, two Bibles, 1762 and 1769. This one was Cambridge. And this one was Oxford. These two became the standard for, for all Bibles after the, after the 1800s. So the 1800s, a few more changes were made. People got upset about it. They were tired of it. They were sick of all these changes taking place. And so they began to revert back. They went back to the modernization of these two Bibles. And then many of them went back even to the spelling. They used the, the modern um, grammar and punctuation and italics and things like that of, of these two Bibles and they went back to the spelling of the 1611. Now, this is what you're going to find. I'll go ahead and tell you, because it was a blessing to me as I'm studying this. And I'm like, you can't even find a Bible today if, this, if all this is true. And it's true. It's not, I'm not suggesting it's not true. But in the 1800s, I'll go ahead and tell you this, and then it'll be repeated later. But it'll hopefully calm your heart, because it did mine. And I was praising God that this information came out. In the 1800s, the American Bible Society 
they, they said, okay, we're, we're trying to print a Bible for our churches, and we've got all these editions, and we're starting to see there's no uniformity between them. This is a problem. So they sat down with six of the, the major editions that existed at the time, and they said, we're, we're going we're gonna to go through all these, we're going to compare every one of them to the 1611, and then we're going to make a standardized version that is the same, that can be read, and that, 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 that is not so wildly different. None of them were wildly different, but is different from each other. All right? At the end, they published a, a document of their findings, and they said they found 24,000 differences between all six editions including the KJV. And the, the result of their finding was that not one, not one of those 24,000 differences caused harm to the integrity of the Bible or changed the Bible or destroyed doctrine in any way. How do you do that? It's God saying, no, I mean, you can make, you can change some italicized words, you can update the grammar, you can, you know, fine, you're not changing my word. You're not going to cause harm to my word. So after reviewing all of that, they came to the conclusion that not one change caused damage to the King James Bible. So do you know what I think? I think if you get anything from 1611 to 1769, you have the word of God in your hands. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.